This week on Myths and Legends, it's the third and final part of the epic story of Sunjata, a legendary West African hero. We'll see how you can pay for a family member's funeral expenses with a basket of trash and why you should leave Evil Sorcerer King out of your online dating profile. On the Creature of the Week, we'll see that the real monster, the smelly Scottish Yeti who lives at the top of a mountain, might just be you. This is Myths and Legends, episode 106C, Who Tells Your Story? This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on the podcast, we met Jata, born in Sogolon, and the king of Mali. His older brother, Dankaran, stole the throne early on, and forced Jata into exile. While in exile, a sorcerer king by the name of Sumeru Kante, king of Soso, took over Mali and burned it to the ground after kidnapping Jata's childhood friend. When the Mali diaspora finally caught up with Jata in the kingdom of Mima, they told him they needed him, the rightful king, to return. And then his mother collapsed on the floor. Jata ran and caught his mother, who collapsed at the meeting. Sogolon looked up at her son and smiled faintly. Raising her children had been the pride of her life. She could look back and see the hand of fate in her life. She could see how all of their pain and struggles had placed them here at this moment. A difficult life had molded her son to be the man he was always destined to be. It had prepared him to take back their home. She wouldn't be going with him, however. She had done what she had set out to do. Jata was now king of Mali, and she could now rest. With that, Sogolon, the buffalo woman, wife of a king and mother of a king, closed her eyes and passed from this world. The king of Mimo was livid. He'd stuck his neck out for this man, this Jata. And now the guy was leaving? Just like that? The king also refused to allow Jata to bury Sogolon in the land where she had finally been able to live in peace. If Jata wanted to take the land for his mother's burial and then abandon him, he would need to pay for it. So, the next day, Jata returned with the payment. A basket full of dirt and broken pottery. The king grimaced. Was this a joke? The king's prophet in residence tapped him softly on the shoulder and whispered into the king's ear. The prophet warned the king that it was a veiled threat. A... Very veiled threat, but a threat nonetheless. Jata was warning the king that if he didn't give him the land to honor his mother, he would return after he took his kingdom back. And Mima would be so thoroughly destroyed that the only thing left would be dirt and broken pottery. Stunned, the king changed his tune and summoned Jata back into the room. The following week, Jata set out backed by half of the king's army. His mother laid to peaceful rest. It was well after dark, and Jata sat up in his tent. He was still awake. He had heard rumors about Sumeru Kante, the sorcerer king, but he didn't believe them, not until he saw them. Just that morning, Sumeru Kante had found him, but Jata had been ready. Through this whole journey, 
he and his men had swam upstream against a current of refugees flooding into the north, barely escaping Sumeru's carnage. Soso, his kingdom, had ballooned. Now it was spreading like a plague. One night, as Jata stared at the horizon, he saw the fires of conquest glowing in the distance. That was when he headed east. He knew his fighting force was too small. He would need to call in a few favors. All those kings that had forced Jata, his siblings, and his mother into exile? Well, by now, most of them were dead. Their sons were now in charge. The same young men Jata had hunted with back in the day. Jata made good on his promise to return with an army marching south. And his old friends, well, they joined him. The morning before they passed closest to Sasso, it finally happened. Jata and his fellow kings heard a shout on the wind. And instantly, Sumeru's army was upon them. As they fought... Jata could see the sorcerer king sitting atop his black horse on the hill, overlooking the battle. Jata smiled from among his men. He had earned the title of Simbon back in Mali, and was an amazing shot with the bow. One arrow would end this war. In one moment, he freed his bow from his shoulder, pulled back on the arrow, and let it fly. He watched it fly straight for Sumeru's head. Jata got ready to yell out in victory, but at the last moment, just as the arrow was going to enter his head, it didn't happen. Sumer's hand raised instinctively, and, without looking, he caught the arrow mid-flight. Through the crowd, Sumeru looked down at Jata with a smile. His eyes remained glued on Jata for the whole time, as the young king fought and opened up a route to the hill, by opening up the heads of a lot of Sumeru's warriors. The sorcerer king sat calmly on his horse, his smile unwavering. As Jata bounded up the hill, lifted his spear above his head, and brought it down hard on the king. Except that, just as he did, the king's smiling face disintegrated into dust and swirled away on the wind. Jata stood alone on top of the hill. He heard the beat of the enemy's drums change and looked back on their army. Sumeru Kante, the sorcerer king, stood at the rear of his army now by a giant windstorm. His warriors were running into it in retreat. When most of them had found their way in, while the others were too busy dying, Sumeru locked eyes with Jata across the battlefield, nodded, and stepped into the storm himself. In seconds, the storm cleared. The army was gone. Jata was up all night, trying to figure out how to kill a man who could catch an arrow in mid-flight, yet melt into the wind. He had heard stories that Sumeru was invulnerable to iron, that he could assume an oddly specific 69 different shapes to escape his enemies, or turn into a fly on the battlefield. Jata knew that he needed the soothsayers and seers of Mali. This enemy would require non-traditional weapons. After a sleepless night, the warriors broke camp. As they were packing, a storm picked up and lightning struck all around. The men and women nearly scattered and ran. But Jata knew exactly what was going on. He ordered archers to surround them, facing outward with burning arrows. And when the army came through the storm to attack, the archers were ready and peppered them with arrows and fire. The portals became so clogged with the burning dead that most of the army couldn't even make their way through. And minutes later, when Sumeru grew tired of losing men for no reason, the storm cleared again, leaving only the smoking remains on the savannah. We'll see Jata finally enter his homeland, after nearly a decade in exile, but that will be right after this. All right, now back to the show. 
Smurukante didn't attack again for the rest of the trip. And, after nearly nine days, Jatra returned to the baobab trees of his homeland, once again. He hadn't yet made his way to the ruins of Nyani yet, but he didn't need to. When word came that the king had returned and that he was marching south with an army, the Mali remnant came out to meet him. On the plains of Sibi, they met him with adulation. It was a good location too. All the way down, villages had opened their gates to Jatta and warriors had flooded to him. It was on the plains, with his soothsayers, that he finally learned the news. Palafasike, his griot, was dead. Probably. He had been with the delegation that went to Sasso before the war, and only one had come back alive. Dankran had been trying to kill him for years, so he didn't shed any tears for the guy. Dankran, however, did end up shedding tears, when his own sister, Sasuma's other child, named Triban, was captured by Sumeru. Everyone mourned Balafasike, but they pitied Triban. Everyone knew where the captured women were taken, and what happened to them. Soothsayers explained that if Jata wanted to learn how to defeat Sumeru, he would need to sacrifice 100 white bulls, 100 white rams, and 100 white cocks, or roosters. Jata was making a mental note when a gasp spread through the crowd and stole his attention. He turned and gasped himself as Balafasike and Triban staggered into the camp. They'd escaped Sumeru Kante and walked for days across the savannah, but they knew it. They knew the key to defeating Sumeru. Triban couldn't talk about anything that had happened in Salso. Balafasike had to take over when she started weeping. He said she had been strong. She had been too strong. She had become one of the Sorcerer King's many concubines. That's how she had met Balafasike, who had been pressed into service as the king's griot. The instant she saw him, she knew she wasn't alone. She stopped fighting the king, and she started scheming. In time, she became the favorite of Sumeru Kante's now 350-plus wives and concubines. It was after one of his nightly visits, when he mentioned that rumors of some kid named Jata had been trickling down from the north, and she assured the sorcerer king that he had nothing to worry about. Jata had been too scared to face the queen mother. He couldn't stand up to a king with the strength of ten men, and hey, also what's the source of all your power? She was a bit more subtle, asking him the name of the genie he worshipped to get his power, so that she could worship him too. During the day, she would meet with Balafasike, preparing for their escape. And during the night, she would play the part of loyal concubine, trying to gain enough trust so that the king would reveal his secret. Eventually, one night as they lay in bed, he confided in her. His weakness was roosters. She cocked her head. Like, he was allergic or something? Sumerkante shook his head. No, it was the spur of a white rooster. The sorcerer sat up and explained. He was able to focus the power of all of his ancestors into himself, all the ancient kings of Salso, to retake their glorious throne. Because no one is all-powerful, there had to be balance, and the spur of a white rooster was his weakness. If he touched that taboo item, he would immediately be cut off from all of his ancestors. He would lose all of his powers. He would be vulnerable. All right, good night. Okay, I'm just going to say this. If I have any evil sorcerer kings listening, first, hi, please don't do any evil sorcerer stuff to me. And second, I know it gets lonely being an evil sorcerer, but if you're kidnapping women, feeling like you're getting close to them, 
and then telling them the secret to killing you Koshe the Deathless style. Stop it. Stop all those things. Stop confessing your secret, yes, obviously, but also stop kidnapping women. It's not cool. I'm pretty sure no lasting, loving, trusting relationships have ever started with a kidnapping. Try to meet women another way. Like, any other way. You're a sorcerer. You can think of something. Anyway, the next day, Sumeru Kante had to leave to go quickly kill that Jata kid who was just milling around near the northern border, so Tribon woke up alone in his bedroom. She found Balafasike and the pair, who were known throughout the household, gained access to the armory where they armed themselves, and that evening, they mostly bloodlessly slipped out of Sasso. Both ran, barely talking for days. Both had witnessed the power of Sumeru Kante and knew that they needed to get as far away from him as possible. Besides, there were rumors that Jatu was back. If that was the case, maybe this war could be won after all. Jata looked on the multitude hailing him as king. It was then that he realized that this was his destiny. For years, he had hated Dankaran for stealing his throne. He had raged at the prophecies. But now, he saw that he was right where he was supposed to be, when he was supposed to be there. It had all been part of a greater plan, known even before he was born. He was meant to experience humiliation, sorrow, and defeat. It had shaped him into the king he would be, it had formed him into the man who would save his people. As the midday sun of the savannah beat down on them, the people cheering Jata's name fell silent. An owl was coming. It landed in front of Jata and extended a talon. It had a message from Sumeru Kante, the sorcerer king. There had to be hours of delay between the responses of the two men, but in the text, it's presented as an epic insult battle. The note from Sumeru Kante ordered Jata to stop. Sumeru was the king of Mali now, by right of conquest. Jata sent a note back, saying that soon he would be able to say the same thing. He would chase Sumeru from his kingdom. Is that so? Sumeru countered. Well, I am the wild yam of the rocks. Nothing will make me leave Mali. But Yams? You're going with yams? Jata replied. Fine. I'll shatter the rocks and eat you, yam. What is this? Rock, paper, scissors? Sumeru penned back, starting to get the hang of it. <laughs> I'm a poisonous mushroom now. I'll make you sick and you'll die. Oh, really? Well, now I'm a rooster and I can eat poisonous mushrooms. Yeah? Well, I'm a hot cinder. You can't walk on me without burning. Okay, that's not even food, but... Whatever, Jata replied. I'm rain now. I'll put you out. Oh, okay. Well, I'm a tree. I love rain. And also, I'm really big. Sumeru replied. Yeah? See that creeper vine that's strangling the life out of you? His name is Jata, and also he's me. Despite the very loose rules for this insult battle, and having, I guess, everything on earth to choose from, and hours to do so, Sumeru was out of ideas. He sent back the final note on a surely exhausted owl, saying that he would never give up the kingdom of Mali. Period. Jata's head would take its place next to all the others in the Sorcerer King's inner sanctum. They were ready to set out. They had to get to Sumeru as quickly as possible, before he knew that Triban had escaped back to her half-brother, and told of Sumeru Kante's Achilles heel, or rooster heel, I guess. Before they left, 
they crafted a solitary arrow, one tipped by the spur of a white rooster. Why they didn't make an entire quiver of arrows is beyond me. If you recall, Jato was just about to sacrifice 100 white roosters before Balafasike and Traban showed up. I guess it's not as dramatic though, so they just made the one and entrusted it to Jata, the master hunter. They made their way as far as the city of Krina before the storms kicked up again. They were right in assuming that there was a reason Sumeru wasn't waiting in his fortress, behind his walls. He knew that Triban had cocheted him and that Jata now knew his secret weakness. He would have to destroy the army led by Jata and his nephew as quickly as possible. Dust clouds raged and warriors flooded in. Jata sat back on his horse. He had told his own warriors to let them come. Sumeru would be at the rear, so they needed to face his army. He had confidence that the free people of West Africa, his people, could take on an army of slaves. Finally, Jata spotted Sumeru Kante riding out and immediately seeking cover. So he knew. Jata shook with nervous energy. They were ready. With the appearance of Sumeru, Sumeru's nephew's army appeared over the hill and headed straight for the Sorcerer King. Their plan was to not give the man any room, any time for him to cast his spells. They knew he couldn't be hurt. They just needed to keep him occupied. Occupied long enough for Jata to fire an arrow. One arrow. Sumeru watched Jata fire it. It was different from the others. He tried to squint and see what was on the thing when he took the butt of a spear to his face. He grunted in frustration and used his magic to crush the warrior, literally and figuratively, before turning his attention back to the arrow. It was closer now. It, uh, One of his nephew's warriors was swinging a sword. Couldn't he have one moment of peace in the middle of a battle? He seized control of the warrior's own hand and commanded it to attack the man until the warrior ceased to be a problem. He turned back to the arrow. It was close now, and there was something on the... T there was a spear coming at him, a sword, three men with clubs. His nephew was attacking him with everything he had. The sorcerer king directed the sword toward the man with the shield, the clubs to the man with the sword, and his own eyes back to the arrow to see. <gasps> no. That's when he saw it. It was a talon. Trabon. She had escaped and revealed a secret. It was almost there, and he didn't have any time to turn to dust. And he didn't want to risk catching it for fear of touching it. His only hope was dodging. He dove back, and it missed. He watched in slow motion as the arrow passed over his body. But his left hand wasn't out of the way yet. He jerked it away as fast as he could. But this realization had come too late. He was still too slow. The tip of the rooster arrow just barely scratched his skin on his left hand, but that was enough. Sumeru felt them all leave. The power of his ancestors evaporated from his body. Instantly, he lost control of his army, of the legions he had enslaved with magic. His nephew's warriors stopped attacking each other and shook their heads. Then, every pair of eyes looked on Sumeru, who for the first time that anyone had ever seen, looked scared. The sorcerer king, the untouchable king, ran. Now free, his warriors watched him flee, and they surrendered. The only man still loyal to him, his own son, jumped on a horse and chased after his father. As the warriors of the surrounding kingdoms began to joyously reconnect with friends and family among the former enslaved. 
Jata and Sumeru's nephew rode hard. But Sumeru and his son rode harder. Jata's small detachment drew close. Close enough to hit the sorcerer king and his son with spears. But both Jata and the nephew refused. They needed to take Sumeru alive. They wanted to parade him through the streets in blood and chains. To show the people that they had nothing to be afraid of. Also, the nephew was still really mad about his wife. They chased the pair all day until Jata could feel his horse starting to weaken. By then, they had almost caught up to the sun. So Jata gave the nephew the signal. He used the last bit of strength his horse had to press the animal hard and jump. He caught the sun and both men thudded to the ground. After a legitimately terrible few minutes, the sun surrendered. During this time, Jata, the hunter, was aiming his spear. He got close enough and seconds later, Sumeru Kante's horse thudded to the ground, dead, as Sumeru flew from it and rolled. By the time Jata was off his horse, Sumeru was back on his feet, still running. He was just a broken old man now, completely abandoned by his ancestors and his army, being chased by the one who was destined to destroy him. He made it as far as the cave at the base of the mountain when he stopped at last. He had to. It was a cliff, deep, black nothingness that stretched deep beneath the mountain. He whipped around at the sound of footsteps behind him. Jata stood framed by the moonlight. They stared at one another for a brief second before the sorcerer, holding his broken arm, smiled, took one step back, and fell away into the darkness. Okay, from a narrative perspective, there are good ways to subvert audience expectations, and there are bad ways to subvert audience expectations. Our modern-day expectation of this scene is that Sumeru isn't dead, right? He's going to come back at the victory celebration, knife to a princess's throat, and someone will finally kill him before restarting the music. It's like how the Joker always seems to fall off something that should definitely kill him, but the fall never actually kills him, and he's back a few issues later. Yeah, except that's not happening here. Sumeru's dead. And that makes sense, right? He's powerless with a broken arm, and he just dropped off a cliff where, best case scenario, he drowns in an underground river. Because how's he getting out of there? Anyway, sadly, he's not coming back for a final defeat. If you're disappointed, so was Jata. The disappearance actually plagues him for weeks or months. Having never seen the body, there's never that closure, that assurance, that Sumeru's not still out there. About a week later, Jata and the nephew returned with the captured son to find their warriors besieging Soso, Sumeru's old city. Now, the place wasn't just one fortress surrounded by thatch huts, but dozens of fortresses. The thing about medieval sieges, though, you really had to be prepared for them, and also to make sure that you could trust the people manning the walls, not to just take a bribe and open the gate. It also really didn't help if the attacking forces were setting the thatch huts on the inside ablaze with fire arrows, and most of the workforce as slaves. The siege of Soso didn't even last a day. The armies were reunited with their friends and families, and the city was torn apart, stone for stone. Of course, there had been kings out there that were loyal to Sumeru, and so Jata visited them one by one on his victory lap. One particular king, having taken the lead from old Sumeru, had communed with an Ifrit who lived inside of a mountain, basically like an evil genie, and the king drank from his magical fountain and got supernatural powers. The king, having hulked out, stood Goliath-style before the entrance to the city, daring anyone to challenge him. Not needing any of that, 
Jata calmly laid out 100 Brewsters and dedicated them to the Ifrit. Seeing as that was a bigger sacrifice than the king had ever given him, the Ifrit promptly switched sides, and the king before the gate shrunk down to Bruce Banner size, before the warriors with their swords made him even smaller. After a quick personal trip to go burn down a labyrinth, Jata and his warriors turned toward home. It was at the city of Kaaba that Jata divided the world. He was now recognized as Mansa, or emperor, a king of kings. The kings all took back their ancestral kingdoms, and where no royalty remained, he appointed them. He gave the nephew the region of Soso, with the demand that the slaves be freed, and that they never rebuild the former capital. Jata, however, was going home, to Niani. He traveled on a victory parade, the son of Sumeru being dragged along in chains, beside his father's grotesque knickknacks and the dead basilisk. When they raided Sumeru's inner sanctum, it was somehow more unpleasant with the reeking dead snake and the now decaying heads. With Sumeru's power gone, everything connected to it had withered and died. At last, the procession came to the ruins of Niani. Jata entered the city of his father's just as he had left it, not arrayed in the most costly robes, but dressed as a simple hunter. He bent down and wiped the ash from the foundation of his father's palace. His palace. They would rebuild his city. He was now a king of kings, greater than any king, of what will be known as the Mali Empire. Balafasike, his griot, stood beside him, taking everything in so that someday he could tell Jata's story. And then his children could. And their children could. And that is how it came to us. There's some history behind this. In West Africa, the Ghana Empire ruled from about 700 AD to 1200 AD until it was consumed by the Soso Empire. That only stayed around for a couple of years, though, before the historical Sumeru Kante, maybe not a wizard, was defeated by the historical prince Sunjata, who led a coalition of smaller kingdoms to defeat the Soso Empire, and then the Mali Empire took its place. I actually found the story because I found people asserting that it was an inspiration for Disney's movie The Lion King, the writers and creators of the movie say it's not, that it's Hamlet with lions, but Jata in Mandinka, the language of these stories, literally means lion. Sunjata was an abbreviated way of saying the lion son of Sogolon, so Jata was a type of Lion King. For those of you even remotely keeping track, we never really learned what became of the former king, Dankaran, and his mother, Sasma, the antagonists for the whole first two episodes. The story just said that they fled, but... I like to imagine, years later, as King Sunjata is arriving in one of his cities, that there are two beggars, two people who look suspiciously like a king and his mother, who were denied entry from any city after they abandoned their people to a sorcerer king decades before. The beggars would freeze when they hear the name of the visiting king, exchange glances, and flee from the city within the hour. That's it for this week. Next week, it's the start of the story of the Golem of Prague a Jewish legend that's been requested more times than I can remember. It's a really good story too. I can't wait to share it. I want to say a long overdue thank you to Megan Robin, Weston Cat Lady, Bazar Man, Chris JGH, Ricky CM, User JL001, Kiwi Booth, Clancy Peterson, Risa Mania, He Clyde 115, 
Higher Opt, Gilly the Great, 101 Mystic, Pause 90, Kate and Lucy, it's in all caps, BC Wino, Yes Darlene, and Property Tax Dad for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you all so much. I appreciate it. If you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still a great place. And you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. There's also a whole membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a flat earth Christmas sweater with NASA lies festively printed all over it, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show that can also be enjoyed ironically or unironically and are based on medieval views of the world. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this time is the big gray man of Ben McDewey. Poet James Hogg was tending sheep on the mountain of Ben McDewey in Scotland when he got a feeling, a feeling that he was being watched. He stopped and spun around to see a 10-foot tall yeti-like creature standing in the midst of the mist. He screamed and ran away as fast as he could, and it was the next morning that he realized, hey, I actually forgot all of my sheep up there and kind of need those to live, so he returned. Warily, he climbed to where he left his sheep, and as he stood, he saw the gray man also rising from the mist. James froze, and so did the gray man. They stood staring at each other before James reached to take off his hat, stepped forward, and addressed the monster. The creature took off his hat and stepped forward to address the man. James sighed. Oh, this was the very first non-sighting of the gray man, and despite Hogg saying, I thought I saw a monstrous gray man, but it turned out it was my own shadow. Isn't that funny? People just heard, I saw a monstrous gray man. That definitely wasn't my own shadow. Isn't that terrifying? And thus, inexplicably, the legend of the gray man was born. Despite the original guy saying that, seriously, it was just my own shadow. Why are you only paying attention to the first part of that sentence? People kept not seeing the gray man. I say not seeing, because people who went hiking in the mountain with knowledge of the story kept feeling like something was watching them and kept hearing footsteps that followed theirs by milliseconds. It's said that the simplest solution is the best, so it only makes sense that it wasn't animals or the echoes of their own footsteps, but a 10-foot tall yeti man that no one has ever seen. The gray man is, of course, a hairy naked guy. They're so ubiquitous in the Creature of the Week segment that they're basically a trope themselves. They come in all shapes and sizes, but it seems like a third of the creatures of the week are just hairy naked guys out there causing trouble. Our biggest mythological problem isn't Zeus or Loki or dragons. It's hairy naked guys. I don't know what's happened in human history to have hairy naked guys causing trouble enter into our collective unconscious, but seeing as they're in pretty much every culture's folklore, basically an archetype at this point. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes, and today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and edited and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>